1: And away we go. Episode 287 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Thursday, April 7th, 2022. It is opening day for Major League Baseball. It is a delayed opening day. That is true. And we have the lockout to thank for that. But the delay ended up not being all that much. Remember, MLB during the lockout told us that opening day was canceled and the first few weeks of the regular season were canceled. And then magically, none of those cancellations actually ended up happening. Uh, The cancellations proved to be empty threats as the owners and players want a full regular season to, yes, make that money, okay? Make that money, as Chase Young said last year, every last penny. But opening day is here, and that is a good thing. Uh, We have had a change in the start time for the Nationals opener. Game one of a four-game series against the New York Mets at Nationals Park moved from Thursday afternoon at 4.05 to Thursday night at 7.05 with lots of rain in the forecast for Thursday in the Washington, D.C. area. Now, the Orioles won't begin their 2022 regular season until Friday afternoon at the Tampa Bay Rays at 310. Later in the show, I will preview both the Nats and the O's. Uh, No, neither team is expected to be very good this season, but there is a lot to be thinking about with each team, and so I'll give you the three things that, to me, matter the most for each team. Hello and welcome. To a Thursday installment of the Al Galdi podcast, a Nationals and Orioles season preview installment of the pod, but also an installment of the pod that is heavy on Commander's Draft Talk. The 2022 NFL Draft is just three weeks away, April 28th through the 30th in Las Vegas. The Commanders these days are welcoming in a bunch of draft prospects for visits, including reportedly... Ohio State receiver Chris Olave on Thursday. uh, A lot of people like themselves some Chris Olave. I like myself some Chris Olave, as well as another Buckeyes receiver, Garrett Wilson. And so coming up shortly on the show, I'll welcome on a special guest, Ohio State football insider Nathan Baird of Cleveland.com. He'll tell us all that we need to know about Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson. Hey, the Commanders already have two Ohio State receivers in Terry McLaurin and Curtis Samuel. Why not add one more with that number 11 pick in the 2022 draft? Uh, Also regarding the Commanders draft, LSU corner Derek Stingley Jr. He is maybe the best corner in the 2022 draft. He also may be the most difficult player in the draft to evaluate uh, in no small part due to him coming off a left foot Liz Frank injury. But Stingley on Wednesday was quite impressive at LSU's Pro Day. Should the Commanders consider taking Stingley with their number 11 pick in the 2022 draft? I will talk Derek Stingley Jr. next segment. Uh, I'll also talk Capitals and Wizards on the show. Much needed win for the Caps on Wednesday night and over a good team, a 4-3 win over the Tampa Bay Lightning at Capital One Arena as the Caps moved within seven points of the Lightning For the Eastern Conference's top wild card spot, Alex Ovechkin had a two-point night. Defenseman John Carlson had a four-point night. And the Caps goaltending competition is back on. I'll discuss all of that, as well as the Wizards. uh, I tell you, the Wiz have been so Jekyll and Hyde lately. They, on Wednesday night, were back to being uh, not so good. A 118-103 loss at the Atlanta Hawks. Wiz have just two regular season games left. Let the ping-pong balls accumulate when it comes to the NBA draft lottery. I am not mad at all about the Wizards losing on Wednesday night. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. Oh, by the way, I have been verified on Twitter. Yes, I finally have the blue checkmark on Twitter. I have officially joined the blue checkmark brigade. I'm not sure how slash why this has happened. I mean, I feel like I should have gotten the blue checkmark a long time ago, but hey, better late than never. So yes, uh, I am now part of the oh so elite blue checkmark brigade on Twitter. I can start lecturing people and telling people what to think about anything and everything. Uh, also, you can email me, the Al podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Cyrus on Dan Snyder and something that could happen with this commander's alleged financial impropriety. Right, Cyrus? I've heard both you and Kevin warn about this alleged financial impropriety backfiring and making Dan Snyder look like a sympathetic figure. I might be misunderstanding this, but why is that a worry? The way I see it, we're stuck with Dan and we have nothing to lose. Why not throw everything at him? If the congressional hearings for the workplace sexual misconduct were going to do him in, I feel like it would have happened by now. Nothing seems to stick to him and I don't have hope that any single accusation or event will take him down. I think we have to hope for the accumulation of allegations to cause enough headaches for the other NFL owners to finally say enough is enough. Even if one of the accusations ends up being unfounded, I don't think that is a backwards step to removing him as owner. Curious about what you think. Uh, thank you for the email, Cyrus. So Dan Snyder becoming a sympathetic figure would work against the cause of him being removed As owner of the commander. See, here's my concern. If this alleged financial impropriety stuff isn't true or can't be proven, then that's a major win for Dan and a major blow for congressional involvement with the team. And then it does start to look to at least some people like Congress has it out for Dan. And all of this then perhaps leads to congressional involvement with the team fizzling out, especially. If we're going to have the red wave come the November midterm elections, and maybe we will not have the red wave in November, who the heck knows. But if the Republicans flip the House of Representatives, then congressional involvement with the commanders is done. Okay, plain and simple, because the involvement has been totally partisan. Democrats in Congress are for the involvement. Republicans in Congress are against the involvement. But congressional involvement with the commanders is the thing driving true hope that Dan Snyder could be ousted as owner of the Commanders if not for this congressional involvement which is debatable whether it should be happening anyway but it is happening and if not for it we wouldn't be having these conversations about Dan's future as owner of the team potentially being in jeopardy. Remember, it was just last year that Dan emerged from the scandal and controversy that all started in July 2020 more powerful than ever before, with him buying out his three now former disgruntled minority partners at a discounted price with help from the NFL, what brought back any hope that the Danny could be done as owner of the team was the reigniting of the workplace misconduct scandal last October via the leaked emails of Bruce Allen from his time as a Redskins executive. So if congressional involvement loses steam or goes bye bye, well, then so too does any hope of a coup of the Danny. I want to make something clear though. Dan Snyder should not be ousted as owner of the team based on things that are not true. Like the truth matters. I'm not a fan of making stuff up <laughs> just to get him out or just going off of unsubstantiated allegations to get him out. So the truth with this alleged financial impropriety stuff very much matters. Email from Brent in Northeast DC. Writes Brent, long time, no email. You know the old adage, one man's trash is another man's treasure? I see the meaning there. Something one person considers worthless, maybe worthwhile. For someone else, more often than not, I find one man's trash is in fact another man's trash. In Washington, though, we do things differently. We intend to make sure that the Carson Wentz is trash theme has data points within three standard deviations of certainty. We take it to another level. The old trash and treasure adage usually applies to one man and then another man, we are actually the third man. To recap, for our franchise, when it comes to Carson Wentz and our S show, one man's trash is the second man's confirmed trash. For the third man, parentheses us, confirmed trash is worth $28 million against the salary cap and two draft picks. A regular Salvatore Mundy. Let me know some time around week three. And I'll call three one one for a Carson pickup. Keep on rolling early in the a.m. Uh, Brent, very clever email. Well done, my friend. And uh, keeping with your theme, all that we can hope for is that somehow, some way, uh, Ron Rivera and the Commanders are like the guys on American Pickers. If you've ever watched that television show. Uh, And that Ron and the Commanders can do as the American pickers do, and that is do something useful and purposeful with the second man's confirmed trash in Carson Wentz. Jeez, uh, it's harsh calling anyone trash, but I get where you're coming from on that. You know, if Carson Wentz is a flop for the Commanders, then Ron Rivera does look pretty bad. I mean, there's no doubt about that. The trade looks like a debacle. But if Carson Wentz is a hit for the Commanders... Then Ron looks quite good, does he not? And the Indianapolis Colts and even Philadelphia Eagles look not so good. You know, the potential does exist in this situation for Don Ron to come out looking quite smart, but. We shall see. Well, nothing is smarter if you own, run, or work at a business than using Imageworks. Uh, grow your business, better market your business, and more effectively reach customers by working with ImageWorks. ImageWorks is a full service boutique web design branding and marketing company. And ImageWorks right now has a special offer for listeners of the Al Galdi Podcast, a free review of your website. Yeah, ImageWorks will tell you how your website can be even better. Free of charge. You have nothing to lose. Take advantage of this free offer. Go to ImageWorksCreative.com, click on contact near the upper right corner and make sure that you mention the Algaldi Podcast. For the free offer, that's imageworkscreative.com. Image, one word, works, plural, creative.com. Imageworkscreative.com. Click on contact near the upper right corner and make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast for the free offer. Uh, also, you can call or text the owner of Imageworks, Scott, at 703 928 7309. That's 703 928 7309. Just make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast. For the free offer, Imageworks will take your business to the next level and make you more money. Imageworks is located in the DMV but can work with a business anywhere in the country. Just go to ImageworksCreative.com, click on Contact near the upper right corner, and make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast for a free review of your website. Imageworks, creative minds focused on one goal, your business success. All right, before we get to our special guest, Ohio State football insider Nathan Baird of Cleveland.com to talk about two of the top receiver prospects in the 2022 NFL Draft in the Buckeyes, Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson, with Olave reportedly visiting the Commanders on Thursday. I want to talk about someone who the Commanders were looking at on Wednesday. Uh, We on Wednesday had the LSU Pro Day, which was a showcase for corner Derek Stingley Jr., Uh, Derek Stingley Jr. is one of the more interesting guys in the 2022 NFL draft. He did not perform in any drills at the NFL Scouting Combine in Indianapolis last month as he's coming off a Liz Frank injury, but Stingley did quite well at the LSU Pro Day on Wednesday, and people noticed uh, all 32 NFL teams were in attendance at LSU's Pro Day, including the Commanders. Uh, General Manager Martin Mayhew was in attendance at LSU's Pro Day. Uh, Mayhew, as many of you listening know, is a former NFL corner, including having been a starting corner on the 1991 Super Bowl champion Redskins. But Stingley at LSU's Pro Day per LSU had 40 yard dash times of 4.37 seconds and 4.44 seconds. Stingley at LSU's Pro Day per LSU had a vertical jump of 38 and a half inches. Uh, all of those numbers are impressive numbers, especially considering that he's coming off a Liz Frank injury. Uh, But yeah, there is that injury, and there is an injury history with Stingley. Uh, Stingley totaled just 10 games over his final two seasons at LSU 2020 and 2021. He, in late September 2021, underwent surgery for a left foot Liz Frank injury. So he, in LSU's 2021 season, played in just three games. And Stingley in LSU's 2020 season missed three games. Two games due to an ankle injury and one game due to illness. But Stingley has played at an extremely high level. Derek Stingley Jr. in 2019 had maybe the greatest season that any freshman corner has ever had in college football. Uh, LSU in the 2019 season went 15-0 and won the national championship. Stingley in the 2019 season as a true freshman was a starting corner for LSU in all 15 of its games, earning Consensus All-America honors. Uh, Stingley was number one in the SEC and number five in the FBS in interceptions with six. Stingley was number one in the SEC and number two in the FBS in pass defenses with 21. Stingley in that 2019 season as a true freshman was a true shutdown corner who thrived in man-to-man coverage. The question is whether he can still play at that level off this left foot, Liz Frank injury. Another question with Stingley is effort. Uh, take a listen to this from ESPN NFL draft analyst Todd McShay on ESPN's first draft podcast in late January.
2: The, the Stingley thing's interesting because, because if you go back and study Derek Stingley at LSU as a freshman in 2019 in that great season that the Tigers had, I mean, I would have drafted him as the first cornerback coming out that year. I mean, that's how talented he was. Six interceptions, ball hawk, lockdown corner, fresh out of high school, and showed no fear going up against these, these great SEC wide receivers, and, and the entire season just played with a lot of confidence. Then he comes back the last two seasons, and if you were to evaluate him just, and you never saw 2019, You'd say, well, you know, maybe he's a, a later first-round pick and a guy we can develop, but, man, he, he hasn't been able to stay healthy. It just didn't seem like he was playing with the same fire and the passion and, and wasn't making the same plays on the ball that he was. So he's a tough evaluation in a cornerback class that's absolutely loaded. We talked about Sauce Gardner from Cincinnati, uh, Trent McDuffie from, from Washington, Roger McCreary from uh, from Auburn, Andrew Booth Jr. from from Clemson, Kair Elam from Florida, I mean, there are a bunch of guys that are competing to go in that first round at the cornerback spot. It's going to be interesting to see with Stingley where he winds up landing because based on pure talent and what he was in 2019, he's a top five pick. But that might not happen for him because of what happened on the field and what happened with the durability issues the last two years.
1: Yeah. So as Todd McShay pointed out, there aren't just durability questions with Derek Stingley Jr. There also are some effort questions. Uh, How about this? Derek Stingley Jr. in his collegiate career per pro football focus missed on 17.9% of his tackle attempts. That's frightening. 17.9% of his career tackle attempts at LSU resulted in missed tackles for pro football focus. Um, That's not what you like to see from your corner as a tackler. And so especially considering that there are some good corners in the 2022 draft, you do have to think about spending a first round pick on Derek Stingley Jr. But you also could very much argue that Stingley at his best is better than any other corner in the draft. I mean, the consensus top corner in the draft is Sauce Gardner, Cincinnati corner Ahmad Sauce Gardner. How great is that nickname, by the way? Sauce. The dude's nickname is Sauce. Uh, I'm not sure that Sauce was ever as good as Stingley was in his 2019 True Freshman season. So Stingley at his best may well be better than Sauce at his best, but 2019 is three years ago now. So things do change. When it comes to the Commanders and their number 11 pick, in the 2022 draft, I'm very much a best player available guy, okay? Unless you're a Super Bowl contender that really truly is like one player at one position away, you should pretty much always go best player available in an NFL draft. The Commanders are not a Super Bowl contender, not yet anyway. Uh the Commanders are not so loaded at any one position to where they should decline a potential high-level player at any position. Uh, I do, though, think that corner is a particular position of need for our commanders. Uh, in today's NFL, you need three starting caliber corners with how often you have at least five defensive backs on the field. You tell me, do the commanders have three starting caliber corners? Uh, the commanders have two starting caliber corners, in Kendall Fuller and William Jackson III, but Jackson, as we know, uh, didn't exactly kill it last season in his first season with the team, although he was better as the season went on. But heck yeah, the Commanders should be open to Derek Stingley Jr. with that number 11 pick in the 2022 draft. Now, I would prefer Sauce Gardner, but I'm open to Stingley. Uh, Derek Stingley Jr.'s grandfather, by the way, was former New England Patriots receiver Daryl Stingley. Uh, Daryl Stingley is famous For a terrible reason, Daryl Stingley in August 1978 became quadriplegic uh, due to a hit from Oakland Raiders safety Jack Tatum in a preseason game. Uh, Daryl Stingley died in April 2007 at the age of just 55. Very sad. But yeah, his grandson, Derek Stingley Jr., and Derek Stingley Jr. has a chance to be a very good NFL corner. Uh, Obviously, the commanders would have to be comfortable with Derek Stingley Jr. from a health standpoint in order to draft him, but. He certainly should be somewhere on the commander's board. Uh, Todd McShay's latest mock draft came out on Tuesday. McShay had Sauce Gardner going to the New York Jets at 10. McShay had Derek Stingley Jr. going to the Minnesota Vikings at 12. So McShay had the top two corners in the draft going in picks sandwiched around the commander's number 11 pick, with which McShay had the commander's taking Ohio State receiver Chris Olave. And for more on him, as he reportedly is visiting the Commanders on Thursday, and for insight on Buckeyes receiver Garrett Wilson, we welcome on Ohio State football insider Nathan Baird of Cleveland.com right now. Hey, do something nice for yourself. Subscribe to the Al Galdi podcast. If you don't already, subscribe to the podcast. Uh, subscribing costs you nothing and will make you totally happy with your life. So why wouldn't you subscribe? Uh, 100% guaranteed happiness if you subscribe to the Al Galdi podcast. Uh, also, if you're listening... This podcast on Apple Podcasts, please give the podcast a five-star rating, and please write a brief one or two-cent review saying how much that you like the podcast. Uh, Doing these things takes uh, less than a minute. Uh, You can also give the podcast a five-star rating, on Spotify. Uh, The ratings and the reviews help to make the podcast successful. And so I very much appreciate you guys doing the ratings and the reviews. And don't forget to support the sponsors of the Al Galdi podcast, including Dr. George Verghese for all of your dermatological needs and Imageworks. If you want to grow and better market your business. So this episode of the podcast is for Thursday, April 7th. Three weeks away are we from the first round of the 2022 NFL Draft, which will take place in Las Vegas, April 28th through the 30th. The Commanders have the number 11 pick in the 2022 Draft, a draft that is said to be loaded at receiver. And very interestingly, the commanders over these next two days reportedly are meeting with two of the top receivers. In the 2022 draft, Ohio State receiver Chris Olave reportedly was to visit the Commanders on Thursday, and Alabama receiver John Mechie reportedly was to visit the Commanders on Friday. But going back to Olave, he and another Ohio State receiver, Garrett Wilson, are considered two of the best receivers in this receiver-loaded 2022 draft. Uh, We know that the Commanders, like themselves, Ohio State receivers, see Terry McLaurin, C. Curtis Samuel. We also know that Ron Rivera himself attended Ohio State's Pro Day on March 23rd. And so I'm very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast, Ohio State football insider, Nathan Baird of Cleveland.com. You can follow Nathan on Twitter at NWBaird and Baird is spelled B-A-I-R-D. Nathan, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. Just got back from Ohio State practice.
3: So definitely in a football mood these days.
1: There you go. Well, good to have you on here. Uh, Wanted to get your opinions on Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson. So, the consensus seems to be that Wilson is the better NFL prospect than Olave is. Is that how you see things?
3: I suppose. I I guess, yeah. Garrett Wilson, to me, is maybe the more dynamic, all-around receiver. Um, Who actually ends up producing more? I don't know. Because Chris Olave also has some of the traits that you would look for in that sort of prototypical deep ball guy who can can get you big plays downfield so i think there's you know as as is reflected in the fact that both these guys are being projected now in the top half or worst case like middle of the first round that tells you that both of these guys should Be productive NFL receivers. The the consensus is that these guys are productive NFL receivers. What I think is interesting about Wilson, though, is just the variety of ways that they used him in over the course of his Ohio State career. You know, being a slot guy at times, being a perimeter guy at times. They would you know try to find ways to get him jet sweeps and handoffs and stuff. And he may be just a guy that can do more different things for an offense than Olave can. But I don't necessarily think that – I see that as like a limitation to what Olave can do as an NFL player.
1: Was Chris Olave at Ohio State used in the slot, or was he just mostly an outside receiver?
3: Yeah, very predominantly an outside guy. I wasn't here for his freshman year when he kind of came on at the very end of the year. But these past few years, it's been just as a, as that – kind of that, that deep threat guy uh, on the outside. And then you know, Wilson was the guy operating sort of off of that. Although they'd move Wilson outside when they went into to, two tight insets and only had two receivers on the field back in 2020. And in this past year, Wilson joined him on the outside. Those guys were the outside threats. And then Jackson S- Smith and Jigba was this, uh, you know, sophomore coming along and having this huge season uh, sort of in the middle of all those guys. But a lot of it for the most part, yeah, it's, it's been as, a guy who can can just make those big plays. But also, uh, it's not just streaking downfield. You know, Maybe the thing about him that is his biggest asset as he goes off to the NFL um, is just his route running. He was considered one of the most pristine route runners in this class. That's something he has prided himself on, something that I think coming back to Ohio State for another year, working with Brian Hartline for another year, probably made him even better in that regard. So he's going to come in as a guy who – is just pretty sharp at those those small technical aspects and I think that's going to help him whatever offense he can you know slide into that'll help him with the, the learning curve there
1: It's interesting when you look at Chris Olave's stats Olave in the 2021 season had 65 receptions 13 of them resulted in touchdowns Olave in his collegiate career totaled 175 receptions 35 of which resulted in touchdowns. Uh, I know you already kind of hit on some of this, but uh, what jumped out to you about Olave as a playmaker?
3: The playmaking stuff it started even before he was a full-time receiver, really. I think, and I don't know how much you want to read into this sort of thing. I, I always think that if a guy is a football player, kind of first and foremost, that's a good sign for him to then build on later. And he was a guy who was had a big breakthrough at the end of his freshman year, not only catching a couple touchdown passes, but you know blocking a punt that was returned for a touchdown against Michigan. Getting in and he ended up being the the gunner on punt returns all four years he was at Ohio State. They you know like to use even their star guys on on special teams here a lot, and he sort of showed just some of that like pure football player um, instinct and mindset and an attitude and in the, beyond that though uh, again just i can i can think back to just a couple plays that stand out in his career there was a touchdown catch against penn state in 2020 that was sort of a, a bomb down the sidelines from justin Fields so he ran under and was able to kind of catch with his fingertips in stride and keep going so in addition to just being you know over the middle of the field and in the intermediate stuff a, a good route runner there's he can go down and make plays on a ball in the air. I think that's important too. And he's not the most, he's not the strongest guy. The one of the things he came back and wanted to improve in 2021 was his upper body strength. I don't know how far along he really got in that endeavor, but sort of just, he is what he is from a body standpoint. He's is able though, to use what he can do with quickness and what he can do vertically to um, play a little bit bigger than his size.
1: We're discussing two of the top receiver prospects in the 2022 NFL Draft, Ohio State's Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson with Ohio State football insider Nathan Baird of Cleveland.com. So with Chris Olave coming back for his senior season, so there are some who will look at that and say, well, geez, if he's so good, why didn't he come out earlier for the NFL Draft as Garrett Wilson is doing? Why didn't Olave enter the 2021 NFL draft. Was it just about adding the upper body strength or was there more to him coming back for the 2021 season than just the upper body strength?
3: I think part of it was was the upper body strength. Um, I think there was a part of it too that they, they uh, I don't know how this class was relative to what he thought the last year's class was going to be or how that changed over the past year. You know, sometimes that can be a little bit of a, a factor guys trying to guess like, well, I, I might be a first rounder this year, but I would definitely be one next year. And that's how that has turned out. Even though this is a pretty, obviously a, a deep receiver class too. I think at the time they didn't expect, for instance, James Williams to be a first round pick because he, you know, he's, he's leaving Ohio state because he, he was kind of running out of an opportunity to play. So, I think all those things factored into a little bit. Also, just a guy who, um, you know, he was a late bloomer. He was a guy who was not highly ranked coming out of, you know, unlike Garrett Wilson, who was a five star top, you know, 30 prospect or whatever. Olave was ranked down in like the 300s, I think, or maybe even lower coming out of high school. Uh, Ohio State kind of discovered him by accident. Ryan Day was going out to see a, a quarterback in California who was Olave's teammate. Olave was the one running routes for him, and he was like, oh, what's going on here? And then he ends up at Ohio State. So I think there was some of it was maybe just you you have to want to be ready to take that step. Some guys are obviously done with college far sooner than that and are ready to jump to the nfl sometimes even too early and i think for Olave he saw what was coming back he believed in what cj stroud was he saw an opportunity to have a pretty special year and they they got to do a lot of that they didn't get as far as they wanted obviously and then not getting into the playoff even but i think he came back and did um help his draft stock but with another year of growth another year of work on on speed on route running all of those things and then being able to go then now to the combine to his pro day and show off some of those things has pushed him up. You know, it, it, at the beginning of this process, it was like he's probably he's probably a first round pick. And then now there's you know could he be the second receiver off the board? I don't think that's uh, um, he might be the front runner for that, but it's also not out of the question.
1: Yeah, what do you make of the rise of Chris Olave? What's behind that?
3: Well, I think he had to go to the combine and and if you're not a big receiver then you have to kind of leave no doubt as to some of the other things and by going there and running the time he did doing some of the other things he's done and and showing up in the drills and, and you know doing what you have to do in the interviews i think all those things are important uh, he both him and wilson in different ways had some things that they probably had to prove there and if you're not if you're not drake blunt if you're not one of those guys that has one of those big bodies then you sort of have to go in and really check off the other boxes and show people for sure that this is what you are. And I think he's done that for the most part. And I think people have now seen that also the other question I think teams probably had was the success that Wilson and or Olave had, how much of that is, did they benefit from having the other one on the team at all times? And when you can go to a combine scenario and you're getting, You know, getting reps with quarterbacks you don't even know, let alone ones you've played with before, and having to do things sort of on an island and you can can still show up from a a skill standpoint, I think that makes
1: a big difference. You referenced neither Chris Olave nor Garrett Wilson being particularly tall. Olave at the NFL scouting combine measured as being six feet and three-eighths of an inch. Uh, Wilson at the combine measured as being five-eleven and six-eighths of an inch. Uh, Which guy to you is more physically gifted overall? Well, that was
3: actually one of the other things that helped Olave was he showed up. I'm trying to remember the exact measurements, but we expected they were listed pretty close to each other on Ohio State's roster. And we thought that, you know, some fudgery kind of happens there sometimes. And so we thought Wilson was going to measure up a, bigger than Olave. And it didn't really work out that way. Olave, I think, helped himself just by, like, getting on a scale there and and ended up maybe um, look, coming across as as maybe bigger and more fit. And, and that's where, again, that extra year probably helped him too. I think I still lean towards Wilson as being the one that's more physically gifted though. The other thing to remember is he's still, you're getting him a year earlier. He hasn't had that fourth year yet. So I think is if you're an NFL team and you want to get that one extra year of development, that one extra year that where the guy hasn't approached his ceiling yet, that's still where I would lean. Like I said, Wilson was a guy that, they felt they could use in various ways, and it was mostly about like what's the most advantageous way to use him, what gets him on the field the most, what allows Ohio State to take advantage of him the most. And his second year, that was moving him into the slot and kind of making him a, a featured part of the offense there. And then last year, it was, you know, because they had Jackson Smith and Jigba emerging, now they could move him out. Still brought him in every once in a while. He is definitely a guy, I think, that could perform either role in an NFL offense. But a guy who, as early as his freshman year, again, you've got highlights there, the the, the catch he made against Clemson, you know, going up and and elevating, making that catch in the playoffs early on. uh, Just things that he can do on a field where once in a while you'd be like, oh, like, that not everybody can do that. He's got a little something special. And that's what you need to separate in the NFL, especially if you're going to be selected as a first round pick. Now the expectations are higher. You don't get necessarily as much of a grace period. You've got to come in and be ready to do a lot of things physically and hold your own. I think he is the one that's maybe a little bit better suited to do that.
1: How are Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson as blockers? Is either guy a good blocker?
3: I think you you had to be in Ohio State's offense as much as they threw the ball. It was an offense that um, needs to run uh, more than people think and it does run Is kind of dedicated to the run. Obviously, they had J.K. Dobbins just a couple of years ago running for a couple thousand yards and in what they've got now going on with Travion Henderson. So they expect those guys to, to be able to get out there and, and hold their own. They do play a lot of 12 personnel, though. They do play a lot of double tight scenarios to help with the run, and they like to use those situations to set up the past too. that they, they do a lot of play action out of 12 personnel and, and play off of, you know, other teams having to maybe overcompensate or overguess on, on what's going on there. But I, both Wilson and Alave, I think are, are fine blockers. I think there are some other guys in that program who uh, probably are farther, were farther along as blockers, but they sort of had to be because I was how they were going to get on the field. Whereas with Wilson and Alave,
1: they had other jobs. Did you ever see drops be an issue for Chris Olave or Garrett Wilson, or not really?
3: Nothing that was uh, a a um, sort of a pandemic of any, or not a pandemic. That's a bad word to use. You know I <laughs> Nothing that was a prolonged problem. Um, and you know, Olave early on, he had that sophomore year that was kind of I wouldn't say defined, but like the memorable moment of that was he and. Justin Fields having a little miscommunication on the last play of the Clemson semifinal game that ends up being uh, he's not there in the end zone where Fields throws it and it turns into an interception. And that was something that I think lingered with him for a little bit in the offseason, even though it wasn't really, I don't know if it was a fault of his, it. just one of those things that happens on a football field. You, you think you're reading your quarterback right in sort of a freelance situation and he broke off a route and things just went, back, went wrong on that play just at, a, at the most inopportune time. But both of these guys are really technically sound. I already went into that with Alave, but I think it's true of Wilson too. But there was a, a reliability factor. I did think there were a couple of times that, that are, and, and, and I think it was maybe even in the Oregon game that they lost, where there were some catches that I think if you're a first round pick, if you think you might be the number one receiver off the board, if you want to be the called the best receiver in the country, you've got to make that catch. Uh, but I think the... The bulk of their, some of that's nitpicking, because the bulk of their uh, performance really speaks for itself. What both of those guys were able to do over multiple years, not, none of these guys are, are one-year wonders.
1: Yeah, uh, each guy certainly has a resume. So as we all know, quality receivers can be divas. Uh, are there any diva-like tendencies with Chris Olave or Garrett Wilson? I wouldn't say divas. I, I think Wilson is the one that has a little bit
3: more of that swagger to him, at least the more vocal swagger. Olaves is a little bit more of a – I mean, he's a guy from Texas. Wilson is. And and I think with Texas, there's a little bit more of a brash attitude and um, just the level that you play at at the high school level and get proven and then – the, it, there's, it's just a, it's just a more vocal lifestyle down there a little bit. Whereas Alave is the California guy, maybe a little bit more laid back, a little bit more subdued. It's still clearly a, a confident player on the field, but um, a guy who I is 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 just more soft spoken in general, and like literally soft spoken. Like when you do interviews with him, he, he, he's a little bit closer to like a whisper and whereas Wilson has just a little bit more of that straightforward attitude so there is a contrast in personalities between these guys but I think it's it's more about upbringing and just sort of um the the environment around them as they grew up
1: you know it's interesting with Ohio State it really has become like receiver you uh I mentioned Terry McLaurin and Curtis Samuel of the Commanders having gone to Ohio State. Uh one of the best receivers in the NFL is Michael Thomas of the New Orleans Saints. He went to Ohio State. Now we have two of the top receivers in the 2022 draft in Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson being Ohio State guys. Uh look, I know that what happened in the past doesn't necessarily have a bearing on what happens now. Ie, you know that someone like a Chris Carter went to Ohio State or a Ted Ginn Jr. went to Ohio State it really doesn't mean a ton in 2022, but is there something inherent about Ohio State football to where it has churned out all of these quality receivers? So there's
3: been a transition here because in the Urban Meyer era, and that's where McLaurin and Campbell and Michael Thomas and those guys came from, they really were like rotating six guys. It was a little bit of a different approach. You had that, uh, a different kind of a slot receiver, like more of like the I hate to use the term H back as to me. H back is like a, one of those, like kind of like a fullback kind of thing. But the urban Meyer H back was more like a converted running back that played in the slot. And that's really up through 2018. What Ohio state football's offense was about. And then starting with Ryan day. And I think most more importantly than that, starting with the quarterbacks, he started to bring in Justin Fields and now CJ Stroud. And they're passing that torch along. They, started to attack a little bit differently. They've approached their personnel a little bit differently. They were still rotating a lot of guys in twenty nineteen, but in twenty twenty, like all those targets went through Wilson and Olave. And then last year it expanded to include, like I said, Jackson Smith the jig in the slot, who's the guy that everybody's gonna be talking about next year as maybe the first receiver off the board. So it's it's been a combination of a little bit of a the, the receiving talent sort of separating so that you were just targeting fewer guys, I think that's been part of it. And also the, the talent level of the quarterbacks that they're bringing in then attracts – a higher level of receivers. Guys know that they're going to come here and play with some of the best quarterbacks in the country. And then Brian Hartline's presence, a guy that people probably know from his time with the Dolphins and the Browns. He was an Ohio State player, came back here and has been the receivers coach and is considered one of the better recruiters in the country. And it just every year it goes out and gets kind of the guys that he wants. He does. I don't know that he's lost a recruiting battle, so to speak yet. He seems to every year Ohio State has two, three guys coming in that are ranked among the top 10, 12 receivers in the country. And it's just been like clockwork for the last few years.
1: One more for you. Uh, you covered Chase Young at Ohio State. Uh, Chase had a very disappointing second NFL season, including him suffering a torn right ACL. But he in his rookie season was very good. And the hope, obviously, is that he in the 2022 season will be back to being good. From an Ohio State perspective, is there any reason to believe that Chase Young won't ultimately be a very good edge defender in the NFL.
3: Yeah, he was just one of those guys who sort of defied description a little bit um, that, that broke the, uh, ruined the curve a little bit as you're trying to like evaluate players on a field. Because the way I've described it is we always, that football parlance of like who's flashing, like guys who get on the field and flash. And if, if you're talking about like a light switch, Chase Young was like if somebody turned the light switch on and like taped it there, because it was just a constant thing. It was a relentless... Uh, game changing presence on pretty much every snap, and then eventually the production at the tail end of his senior year, which is one year I covered him or junior, year, I should say. Um, there weren't as many sacks, but just the the abundance of attention that he was drawing, kind of the gravity that he had in a game was uh, still just changing games. Uh, the, the the amount of time that another team had to, the amount of their game plan that they had to devote to him was. Was crazy, so I would still think that ceiling is really high for him. I think obviously the injury gets in the way there, and I'm sure that you know, um, just how athletically advanced he seemed to be, and uh, the instinct that he played with. Once he's healthy again, I would expect to see something back towards what what he showed as a, as a rookie. I think it's hard for that to be a fluke. I think that was the legitimate Chase Young. And everything that could have gone wrong seemed to go wrong last year. And once he can get healthy again, I would I would expect to see a lot of what you
1: saw in 2020. Certainly hope that that ends up being the case. Uh, Nathan Baird, Ohio State Football Insider for Cleveland.com. Really appreciate your insight and your time, man. All the best to you. Sure thing. Thanks a lot. Up next, I'm talking capitals off back-to-back blowout losses, a terrific win on Wednesday night.
0: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
1: Now, that was more like it from the Capitals. Uh, they had lost their previous two games by a combined score of 11 2, but the Caps on Wednesday night beat one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference and gained ground in the wild card standings. Caps improved to 38, 22, and 10 with a 4 3 win over the Tampa Bay Lightning at Capital One Arena on Wednesday night. Caps are second in the Eastern Conference wild card standings, now at 86 points, seven points behind the Lightning. For the top wild card spot in the Eastern Conference. The top two wild card teams in each conference will make the Stanley Cup playoffs. Uh, also, the Caps now are 13 points ahead of the New York Islanders for the second wild card spot in the Eastern Conference. So the Caps are looking quite good in terms of making the Stanley Cup playoffs. What Wednesday night really was about was the Caps playing better than they had been playing, uh, and they did play better. Uh, the Caps beat the two time defending. Stanley Cup champion Lightning off the Caps having suffered back-to-back hideous losses, a 6-1 loss to the Metropolitan Division leading Carolina Hurricanes at Capital One Arena on March 28th and a 5-1 loss to the Minnesota Wild at Capital One Arena this past Sunday night. You know, the Caps just haven't been playing much lately, but when they had played, they had not looked good. Also, the Caps beat the Lightning on Wednesday night of a players-only meeting On Monday. Yes, the Caps had the dreaded players only meeting on Monday. Uh, This game initially looked like it was going to be crazy. Uh, The Caps and Lightning combined for five goals in the first period, but uh, then just two goals the rest of the game. Caps did jump out to a 2 0 first period lead and thus were not chasing the game. Uh, that is a phrase that the Caps head coach Peter Laviolette loves to use. We don't want to be chasing the game. He's always talking about not wanting to be chasing the game, and he brought that up once again on Wednesday night. Here was Laviolette during his post game press conference.
4: Listen, when we, we've been too many times where we're we're one down or we're two down, and it's halfway through the first period, and that point, it changes a little bit. You're chasing the game and it's got a different feel to it when you can settle into it and keep you know, keep the attack going and get that first goal. I think it changes everybody's mindset a little bit. Um, but I, I just thought that we were more focused tonight too. So that, that showed from the start. It showed in the way we played and ultimately led to some offense.
1: Yeah, there you go. Now the Caps on Wednesday night were without three forwards. Uh, Garnett Hathaway did not play due to a non-COVID illness, and the Caps remain without Carl Hagelin and Joe Snively. Uh, Hagelin remains out indefinitely off, having undergone left eye surgery on March 1st. He suffered the injury in practice earlier that day, and Snively remains out due to a left wrist injury. The Caps on March 6th announced that Snively had undergone a left wrist procedure and would be out four to six weeks, but the Caps won on Wednesday night, and they won in no small part due to Alex Ovechkin, who had a two-point night. Uh, Ovechkin had a first-period even trend goal, a secondary assist, a game-high tying four shots on goal, a game-high tying ten shot attempts, and four hits. So yet another very productive game this season for Alex Ovechkin. Uh, another milestone night for Ovechkin. He passed the 1,400-point plateau. His two points give him 1,401 Career regular season NHL points. Ovechkin's goal was his 43rd goal of the season, moving him past Phil Esposito in the 1978-79 regular season for the third most goals by a player age 36 or older in a season in NHL history. Uh, Ovechkin now this season number four in the NHL with his 43 goals. So Ovechkin on Wednesday night had a two-point night, and defenseman John Carlson on Wednesday night had a Four point night. Uh Carlson had two power play goals and two primary assists. Anti-pernatural stat trick finished number two on the caps in five on five shot attempt percentage for the game at 67.86. The caps of Carlson on the ice in five-on-five five situations in the game had 19 shot attempts versus allowing just nine shot attempts. So the caps went two of five on the power play. So another good game. For the Caps power play. And then there was the Caps goaltending. As the Caps goaltending turns. uh, So the Caps are back to having a goaltending competition. Peter Laviolette on Monday made it clear that the Caps goaltending competition is back on. Quote, we've got games down the stretch for a push for somebody to make a case. They'll probably both continue to get games. I'd like to have a guy that has emerged and moved forward from that group. They're both good goaltenders, but you want somebody to really take hold of it. There's an opportunity down the stretch here, end quote. Uh, Laviolette obviously talking about both Vitek Vanacek and Ilya Samsonov. Vanacek over the Caps' previous two games had been really bad. Uh, He had stopped just 32 of the 41 shots on goal. That he had faced and so Ilya Samsonov on Wednesday night was the cap starting goaltender for just the fourth time in 15 games. I mean he just has not been playing much lately and he on Wednesday night was so-so. He stopped 25 of the 28 shots on goal that he faced. Samsonov per natural stat trick stopped seven of the nine high danger shots on goal that he faced and gave up a goal on a low danger shot on goal. Here was Laviolette during his post-game press conference on Wednesday night on Samsonov.
4: Yeah, he made made a couple of big saves throughout the game. And... um... You know, that was uh, you, you need that you know you need those big ones and I thought he was he was good but he also seemed to keep himself in the game and dialed in he he had to like I said they you know they pushed and pressed the entire game even if they were behind they kept coming and um, with that you're going to need some saves from your goaltender and he he gave them to us tonight.
1: Yeah, Ilya Samsonov on Wednesday night was good enough to win. Uh, I think that that's the way that you put it. He by no means was great, but he was good enough to win, which was better than Vitek Vanacek was in each of the Caps' previous two games. Caps went 2-3 on the penalty kill. The puck possession battle on Wednesday night was about even in terms of quantity, but not in terms of quality. The Caps, per natural stat trick, had 145 on 5 high danger shot attempts, to the Lightning 7. So the Caps have 12 regular season games left. Uh, Next up are two games against good teams in back-to-back fashion this weekend. The Caps will be at the Pittsburgh Penguins Saturday afternoon at 3 and then home to the Boston Bruins Sunday afternoon at 1.30. All right, we move now to baseball and let's talk Nationals. Opening day is Thursday. Uh, The Nats are beginning their 2022 regular season with a four-game series against the New York Mets at Nationals Park. Uh, The Nats will host the Mets, weather permitting, Thursday night at 7.05. Patrick Corbin versus Tyler McGill as former Nats ace Max Scherzer, who's coming off a sore hamstring, is expected to start Game 2 on Friday night. Uh, The Mets ace, Jacob deGrom, is out due to a right shoulder injury. So this is the first time since the 2011 regular season that we are beginning a Nats season with low expectations. You know, that in and of itself is a real credit to the Nats organization that it hasn't been since 2011 that we've gone into a Nats season with low expectations, but there very much should be low expectations for the Nats in 2022. Uh, The Nats are coming off a 2021 regular season in which they went just 65-97 and and had the fourth worst run differential in the National League at minus 96. And the Nats did very little in the offseason in terms of major additions to make you think that the team will be appreciably better this season. And by the way, I don't blame the Nats for not doing much in the way of major additions in the offseason. You know, the Nats don't like to use the word rebuilding or any version of the word rebuilding, but uh, that's what the Nats are doing. They are rebuilding and hopefully the rebuild doesn't take a long time. Uh, Now it could, but hopefully it doesn't. But if you're going to be rebuilding, you need to rebuild in the right way. You can't go for the quick fix by assigning a bunch of expensive free agents. And so here to me are the three things that matter the most for the Nats in their 2022 season. Number one, that potential building blocks for the Nats perform well and develop. Uh, Nothing matters more than this. Uh, The Nats do have multiple well-regarded young players and or intriguing young players who, if they pan out will expedite the rebuild. The truth about the Nats' rebuild is that a good bit of it is out of the Nats' hands. Uh, If these well-regarded slash intriguing young players develop well and quickly, then the Nats' rebuild may not take all that long. But if these players struggle, then we may be in the state of rebuilding for a while. But you think about the top two prospects who the Nats got from the Los Angeles Dodgers, last July 30th, in the trade of Max Scherzer and trade Turner to the Dodgers, catcher K. Bert Ruiz and starting pitcher Josiah Gray. Uh, you think about the Nats' number one prospect, starting pitcher Cade Cavalli, who is expected to make his major league debut this season, perhaps sooner rather than later. Cavalli is the number 39 prospect in baseball per MLB pipeline. You think about outfielder Lane Thomas, who the Nats got via trade from the St. Louis Cardinals for starting pitcher John Lester last July 30th, and who was stunningly productive for the Nats last season. Lane Thomas, over 206 plate appearances for the Nats last season, had an OPS plus of 133. OPS plus is OPS That's adjusted for a player's league and home ballpark. A hundred is average. Anything above a hundred is good. Thomas's OPS plus with the Nats last season was 133. He was 33% better than league average. Uh, All of these guys, if they pan out, if they prove to be legit, if they perform well, will offer real hope for the Nats. Uh, The three things to me that matter the most for the Nats in their 2022 season. Number two, that the Nats are able to trade away more players for more prospects. So the Nats last summer engaged in a sell-off, the likes of which you rarely see. The 2021 MLB trade deadline was last July 30th at 4 p.m. Eastern. The Nats, over a period of a little more than 24 hours, traded a total of eight players for a total of 12 prospects. This was a super aggressive sell-off, and the Nats very much needed to do as they did. I applauded the Nats for doing it as they did because the Nats farm system had become barren. But the truth is that the Nats farm system still isn't very good, and so the Nats need to be adding to their prospect inventory. Uh, MLB Pipeline just ranked the top 30 farm systems in baseball. The Nats farm system was ranked 23rd, uh, now, it was ranked dead last by MOV Pipeline to begin last season, so 23rd is better than 30th, but 23rd still isn't very good. Uh, the good news for the Nats is that they have multiple trade chips. Uh, what you need to be hoping for this season is that the trade chips play well to where they can be traded for some decent, if not good, prospects. Uh, the Nats' first full-time designated hitter, Nelson Cruz, as we now have a universal DH in Major League Baseball, Thankfully. A definite trade ship with him being on a one-year contract with a mutual option for 2023. Nelson Cruz remains an elite hitter. Cruz over his last three regular seasons, 2019 through 2021, over 1,319 plate appearances with the Minnesota Twins and the Tampa Bay Rays. So not a tiny sample size, has an OPS plus of 152. That is outstanding. I love that the Nets sign Cruz. Uh, The Nats first baseman, Josh Bell, is entering a contract season. He ended up being quite good for the Nats last season. He's a potential trade chip. Uh, every reliever on the Nats, to me, should be viewed as a potential trade chip. Rebuilding teams don't build with relievers, okay? Rebuilding teams should flip relievers to contenders for prospects, especially veteran relievers. So any of these veteran relievers who the Nats have brought in slash brought back, you know, Steve Cishek, Sean Doolittle, Tyler Clippard. hopefully they all pitch well and can be traded to contending teams for prospects. Even a younger reliever, like a Tanner Rainey, if he delivers on his promise and pitches well, don't wait for him to start struggling. Trade him to a contending team. Uh, Any of these veteran cast-offs who the Nats have, if any of them end up being good, 100% trade them. For prospects. Uh second baseman, Cesar Hernandez. Shortstop Alcides Escobar. Third baseman, Michael Franco. Starting pitcher, Anibal Sanchez. Get whatever you can for these guys. These guys are not building blocks. Okay. These guys are placeholders. Trade them for prospects if possible. The three things to me that matter the most for the Nats in their 2022 season at number three. That one or more of the rehabbing Nats gets slash gets back on track. Uh, when I say rehabbing, I am referring to guys coming off major injury and or major struggles. Uh, starting pitchers, Steven Strasburg, Patrick Corbin, Joe Ross, Eric Fetty, uh, center fielder Victor Robles, third baseman Carter Keeboom. All of those guys come to mind. Is there true hope with any of those guys that can be realized in the form of them being good again, or in the cases of Fetty and Kiboom, just being good. Period. Uh, we obviously have Stephen Strasburg. I mean, that's the name that sticks out the most from that list that I just took you through. Strasburg coming off season-ending surgery last July 28 to address neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome, or TOS. TOS is maybe the single worst pitching injury that there is right now. The last two seasons have been a nightmare for Strasburg. He's made a total of just seven regular season starts since the Nats in December 2019 re-signed him to that 70-year, $245 million contract, which really has become maybe the single worst contract in major pro sports. And he's entering his age 33 season. Uh, Patrick Corbin, he's entering his age 32 season and the fourth season of a six year $140 million contract that he signed in December 2018. He's coming off back-to-back bad seasons, including for the 2021 regular season, having a 582 ERA, which was the worst ERA among all qualified pitchers in the majors. Now, he did pitch well in four of his five starts last September. He has remained healthy. I do still have hope for Corbin, but he needs to pitch well. And by the way, if he does pitch well, then he to me could be a trade chip. Uh, Victor Robles is back to being the Nats starting center fielder, but he's coming off back to back atrocious offensive seasons, uh, so much so that the Nats last August 31st optioned Robles. To AAA Rochester, and he stayed there for the rest of the 2021 season. Robles also needs to get back to being the elite center fielder that we know that he can be and that he was in the 2019 season. Robles last season was decent defensively, but he wasn't special, and we know that he can be special. And then Carter Keyboom, uh, the Nets took Keyboom with the 28th overall pick in the 2016 MLB draft, but Keyboom has yet to have any prolonged success at the Major League level, and he's now dealing with serious injury. The Nats on March 21st place Keyboom on the 60-day injured list with a right elbow UCL sprain and a right flexor mass strain. So we shall see. I don't trust the Nats pitching at all, especially given the condensed schedule off the lockout. Uh, all pitching staffs are going to be tested, but if you lack pitching depth as the Nats do, uh, you could be in real trouble. I do think that the Nats could be quite good offensively. You know, the Nats actually ended up being good offensively last season. The Nats finished the 2021 regular season at number two in the National League in Team OPS Plus. At 107. Uh, Of course, the Nats still have the best hitter on the planet in Juan Soto. Let's enjoy him while he's still with the Nats. Uh, Three more seasons of team control, including this one. There's going to be a lot to talk about with the Nats this season. It's just hard to see there being many wins for the Nats to talk about this season. But you know what? We never know. Perhaps we'll be hearing Nats manager Davey Martinez this season proclaim that he is proud of the boys. More often than we think. I'm proud of her, boys. Yes, Davy, thank you. All right, we get now to the Orioles. Uh the O's will begin their 2022 regular season with a three-game series at the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, the O's will be at the Rays on Friday afternoon at 3:10 John Means versus uh, Shane McClanahan. Uh the O's like the Nats are rebuilding, but the O's now are years into the team's rebuild and so this season is an important season for the O's. The O's this season to me need to start showing signs at the major league level that the rebuild is is working. Uh so the Os have been a horrendous team since September 2017. Uh yeah, going back 5 years now. Uh the Os in their 2017 regular season went a hideous 4 and 19 over their final 23 games. Uh the Os that season went from being 71 and 68 to being 75 and 87. I was screaming for the Os that season to trade away their expensive and aging players. The Os did not do that. And the result was a disaster. Uh, the O's in the 2018 regular season had one of the worst seasons that any team has ever had. The O's in the 2018 regular season went a major league worst 47 and 115, with a major league worst run differential of minus 270 in what ended up being the final season of the Buck show, Walter. Dan Duquette era. Then came a new era for the O's. Uh, The O's on October 3rd, 2018, announced that Executive Vice President of Baseball Operations, Dan Duquette, and uh, Manager Buck Showalter would not return to the organization in 2019. The O's on November 16th, 2018, announced the hiring of Mike Elias as Executive Vice President and General Manager. The O's on November 21st, 2018, announced the hiring of Sig Meidel, as assistant general manager in charge of analytics in the O's on December 14th, 2018, named Brandon Hyde as manager. So the rebuild really started with the 2019 season, even though the losing had started in September 2017. The O's in the 2019 regular season went 54 and 108 which was the second worst record in the majors uh, and the Os in the 2019 regular season had the second worst run differential in the majors at minus 252. The Os in the pandemic shortened 2020 regular season it went 25 and 35 going just 13 and 27 after a 12 and 8 start and the Os in the 2021 regular season went a major league worst tying 52 and 110 with a major league worst run differential of minus 297. Yes, the O's last season got outscored by nearly 300 runs. And don't forget what last season featured. The O's last August had a 19-game losing streak, during which the O's were outscored 163-55. The 19-game losing streak, the second longest losing streak in Orioles history, trailing only the Orioles' 21-game losing streak that began their 1988 regular season. Uh, that losing streak, by the way, is the record for longest losing streak by an American League team in what is known as the modern era, which is since 1900. Uh, so yeah, if you're a nose fan, there has been a lot of losing over the last five seasons. And so This season, to me, is time for a turning of the corner to begin. Now, I'm not saying that the O's need to be contenders this season. Uh, The O's almost certainly will not be contenders this season. I'm not saying that the O's even need to win, like, 80 games this season, okay? The O's uh, most likely will not be winning 80 games this season. What I am saying is that we need to see signs that next season, the 2023 season, could be that step-forward season in terms of wins and losses at the major league level. And so here to me are the three things that matter the most for the Orioles in their 2022 season. Number one, that some of the Orioles' highly touted prospects make their major league debuts and look good. Uh, As I have said on this podcast, the Orioles' rebuild is working from a standpoint of their farm system now being outstanding. Uh, MLB Pipeline last Friday ranked the Orioles as having the number one farm system in baseball, uh, the O's per MLB pipeline have five of the top 100 prospects in baseball. At least the top two of those prospects are expected to make their major league debuts this season. Uh, catcher Adley Rutschman, who is the number two prospect in baseball. The O's took Rutschman with the number one pick in the 2019 MLB draft out of Oregon State. He is coming off a right tricep strain. And starting pitcher Grayson Rodriguez, who is the number six prospect in baseball and the number one pitching prospect in in baseball. The O's took Rodriguez with the number 11 pick in the 2018 MLB draft out of a high school in Texas. A few things would bring joy to the Orioles fan this season, more than Adley Rutschman and Grayson Rodriguez killing it in their first major league seasons, whenever they begin. Uh, The whole point of tanking, as the O's have been tanking, is to load up on highly-touted prospects. Let's start to see these highly-touted prospects prove themselves legit. Uh, The three things to me that matter the most for the Orioles in their 2022 season, number two, that some of the Orioles' young pitchers who have struggled in the majors perform better. You know, the O's right now actually are in pretty good shape when it comes to position players. The problem, uh, as it has been with the O's for decades, really, is the pitching. Uh, And last season was a disaster for pretty much every potentially promising starting pitcher at the major league level for the O's. Uh, Dean Kramer, Keegan Aiken, Bruce Zimmerman, Jorge Lopez, Zach Lowther, all of them struggled to varying degrees. The O's desperately need at least a few of these guys to pan out. I'm not sure how realistic that is, but the entirety of Orioles pitching hopes cannot just rest on Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall, who per MLB Pipeline is the number 90 prospect in baseball. Uh, I am intrigued by what the O's are doing with Tyler Wells uh, turning him from a reliever into a starter, though it looks like he'll be pitching in tandem starts, i.e. tag-teaming with another pitcher in games. So Wells will start with the idea of pitching, say, four innings, and then the other guy will come in and pitch four innings. At least that'll be the plan. Uh, Wells last season, 10.3 strikeouts per nine innings, over 57 innings as a reliever. But some of these pitchers for the O's need to step up. Uh, because for now, the Orioles' pitching remains in a bad way. Uh, The Orioles' rotation for now is John Means, Jordan Lyles, Tyler Wells in a tandem start, and Bruce Zimmerman. The O's haven't even named a number five starter. Uh, That's telling. The three things, to me, that matter the most for the Orioles in their 2022 season. at Number three, that the Orioles' promising position players in the majors continue to be promising. I mentioned that the O's right now actually are in pretty good shape when it comes to position players, three big reasons for that are three young players who did quite well at the major league level last season. Talking about center fielder Cedric Mullins, first baseman slash DH, Ryan Mountcastle, and outfielder Austin Hayes. Uh, right there, you have three guys who, if you're an O's fan, you should feel good about. But you also have three guys from whom you do need to see more. Uh, Cedric Mullins, he erupted last season. Cedric Mullins for the 2021 regular season, had a wins above replacement per baseball reference of 5.7. He was terrific. Uh, Is that really who he is? You know, a near six war player? Uh, Is he really that good? Hopefully, uh, but we do need to see more. Uh, Ryan Mountcastle, uh, he was an American League Rookie of the Year contender last season. OPS plus of 112, he hit 33 home runs, setting a new Orioles record for most home runs by a player in his rookie season. The previous record, Cal Ripken Jr.'s 28 homers in 1982. And Austin Hayes really has emerged as one of the best defensive corner outfielders in baseball. Hayes for the 2021 regular season had a war per baseball reference of 3.1. Can he get his batting to where he's a great all-around player? He's already a great fielder. Well, I'll tell you what, Hayes did start to come around as a batter last season, which he finished with an OPS plus of 106. So if you're an O's fan, you feel good right now about Cedric Mullins, Ryan Mountcastle, and Austin Hayes. You do, though, want to see more. I do expect the O's this season to trade first baseman slash DH Trey Mancini, and they should trade him. Uh, I do think that the O's this season could trade starting pitcher John Means, and the O's should be open to trading Means. Uh, And if Jordan Lyles, who the O's signed as a free agent to a one year contract with a club option for 2023 pitches well, then he should be traded. Uh, but this hopefully will be the last season in which the O's are really bad for a while. And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes, Joe Angel, perhaps we will start to see more of the O's in the win column. All right. So the Wizards are ending their season in a very up and down way. Uh, The Wizards played on Wednesday night uh, and they lost. And that's a good thing for Operation Ping Pong Balls in the NBA draft lottery. Uh, The Wizards fell to 35 and 45 with a 118-103 loss at the Atlanta Hawks on Wednesday night. Wizards lost for just the third time in eight games. The Wiz lately have been alternating between blowout wins and blowout losses. And the Wiz... On Wednesday night, we're back to suffering a blowout loss. Friday night, a 135-103 round of the Dallas Mavericks at Capital One Arena. Sunday afternoon, a 144-102 loss at the Boston Celtics. Tuesday night, a 132-114 win at the Minnesota Timberwolves. And now on Wednesday night, a 118-103 loss at the Atlanta Hawks. So you look at the Wizards over their last four games. This past Friday night, a 32-point win over the Mavericks at Capital One Arena. This past Sunday afternoon, a 42-point loss at the Celtics. Tuesday night, an 18-point win at the Timberwolves. And now on Wednesday night, a 15-point loss at the Hawks. That, my friends, is up and down. Uh, The Wizards on Wednesday night never led in the second half. Uh, The Hawks are a good team, but they were without John Collins and Lou Williams. Of course, the Wizards remain without two of their best players. Uh, Kyle Kuzma now has not played in each of the Wizards' last 11 games due to right knee tendinitis. Uh, There is no point, as I've been saying, to him playing again this season. And the Wizards remain without Bradley Beal, who is done for the season due to a torn ligament in his left wrist on which he underwent surgery on February 10th. Uh, the Wizards' defense on Wednesday night was not good. Wiz allowed the Hawks to go 16-39 on threes, allowed the Hawks to finish with 26 assists versus just six turnovers. And the Wizards got Trey Young on Wednesday night. Uh, Trey Young, we know, is an elite score. He finished with 30 points and 11 assists versus three turnovers in exactly 37 minutes as a starter. He did go just three and nine on threes, but he also went five of eight on twos and 11 of 12 on free throws, but what the game came down to, in a lot of ways, was the Wizards' offense in the second half. Uh, the Wizards really struggled offensively in the second half on Wednesday night. The Wiz in the second half totaled just thirty-eight points. Uh, the Wizards in the second half went just three of sixteen on threes. Biggest bright spot for the Wizards was again Kristaps Porzingis, four of eight on threes, four of eight on twos, six to seven on free throws. He finished with twenty-six points, eighteen rebounds, including three. Offensive boards, four assists versus three turnovers and two blocks in 32-21 as a starter. So Porzingis continues to do well for the Wizards since starting to play for them off being acquired by them on NBA Trade Deadline Day this past February 10th. But also on Wednesday night was Rui Hachimura struggling. Uh, Rui, like the Wizards, has been very up and down lately. Rui on Wednesday night 0-5 on threes, had a game-worst plus-minus rating of minus 19 in 31-41 as a starter, did go 4-7 on twos, finished with nine points and six rebounds. Now, Rui was good in the win at the Timberwolves on Tuesday night, but Rui in that 42-point loss at the Celtics on Sunday afternoon was bad. Uh, he went scoreless in 24 minutes, 25 seconds as a starter, went 0-3 three on threes and 0-2 two on twos. He did have seven rebounds. But this was Wizards head coach Wes Unsell Jr. during his postgame press conference on Wednesday night on Rui off him going 0-5 on threes. In this loss at the Hawks,
4: he turned down a couple of good looks, um, and which wound up being some tougher ones. Some that he can make, obviously, he's a he's a really good mid range player. Um, but you know, some of those corner threes, have he already hesitated at times. When you know the ball finds you, especially in rhythm, you know, I think you just do yourself a favor, but also us, and, and the way he shot it all season, uh, you know, I encourage him to take those.
1: Yeah, a consistent theme with Rui Hachimura is people wanting him. To be more aggressive, Wes Unsell Jr. included, Uh, Rui's shooting struggles seem like they can really affect him. Uh, The Wizards have just two regular season games left, home to the New York Knicks Friday night at 7, and at the Charlotte Hornets Sunday afternoon at 3.30. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi Podcast at Yahoo.com. Friday show, episode two hundred and eighty-eight, will feature plenty on the Commanders as well as on the Nationals. As so a game the Nat's twenty twenty-two regular season opener, Nats versus the New York Mets at Nationals Park, Thursday night at 705. Wait for it. Weather permitting. We shall see. If the rain cooperates. Have a great rest of your Thursday, and I'll talk to you on Friday. I'm proud of your boys.
5: Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality.